today's reading will be from 1 Kings 18, verses 16 to 39, which can be found on page 359 in the Blue Church Bible. That's 1 Kings 18, 16 to 39, which is three, page 359. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is the God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descending from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sayers of seeds. He arranged the wood cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four jars with 
water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Worship, worship, that's our theme this morning. Uh, Listen just as we start to how one theologian defines worship. In one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It's the purpose of history, the goal of the whole Christian story. Worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is the entire Christian life seen as a priestly offering to God. I don't know what you think of when you hear the words worship. Perhaps most immediately you think of of singing, but it's much more than just singing worship songs. It is the heart behind everything we do. Actions we associate perhaps with practicing our faith, such as singing, obviously, but praying, encouraging one another, serving in church, and all the things kind of outside of all that, that are just regular activities for everyone. You know, how, how, we, how we work, how we spend money, leisure time, how we build friendships and love our families. Now, in many places throughout the Bible, we are called to worship God. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. There's just one example from the book of Romans. But despite knowing that the Bible calls us to worship, despite being able to understand that theologian's definition of it, worship often for me kind of stalls. It often feels labored, a bit half-hearted. Worship is often not the thing that motivates me to do what I do each day. It's rarely the whole point of everything I do. It kind of rises and then falls, a bit like waves in the middle of an ocean. So a question for you this morning is, 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 what about you? How central is worship for you? What would it take for worship to become the whole point of everything we do, the whole point of everything you do in your life? This account in 1 Kings will help us this morning to answer those questions. Let's pray before we find some answers from God's word. Father, we thank you for this account, this wonderful account in, in 1 Kings. Um, we pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning, and we pray that um, we would be found worshipping you in our hearts and minds. Amen. 
to set the scene, um, we need to kind of dip into a little bit of, of history. Um, we're going back to King Solomon. Um, he became Israel's king at the high point of its history. Everything was going great for them. But as time went on, Solomon made some huge mistakes. He gave himself 700 wives, 300 concubines. A lot were from foreign countries. And one of his biggest mistakes was he started building shrines to the gods of his wives from other countries, idols. The result of that was that God's dwelling place on earth, his, his temple, heard about it last week, was, was co- quickly surrounded by shrines to idols, to gods that were not gods at all. In a matter of a few years, the God who had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, who had led them into the promised land, who had time and again shown, um, shown them grace despite their rebellion, the God who had given them a kingdom, a godly leader, peace, and provided all that they needed, well, he was for his people now just one God amongst many. This was the beginning of a downward spiral. The kingdom split. The kings that followed were, were useless, evil. And then we get to King Ahab, king in the north, who, t- who the Bible tells us was more evil than the lot of them. Enter Elijah the prophet. We heard about prophets last week. This man was a gift from God, speaking the words of God to his people. At this point in our um, account this morning, Ahab already hates Elijah for speaking God's word to him. We get to our passage and Elijah, uh, Ahab says to Elijah, is that you, troubler of Israel? Elijah's obviously having none of that. You and your father's family have made trouble for Israel, he says. So come and meet me at Mount Carmel with people from all over Israel and bring all the prophets of your idols. So they do. And when they've uh, all assembled, Elijah asked the people of Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now, these people in Israel would have grown up in a time when, when it was not united. Israel was not united in its worship of the living God. They couldn't travel from, from one end of the city to the other without seeing shrines to idols of foreign gods. They were brought up in an era which told them, the God you worship, it doesn't matter too much. There's plenty of choice. Just look around, pick one, change your mind, find the one that works for you. And so when Elijah challenges them, which one is God? Is it, is it the Lord or is it Baal? They're at a loss. End of verse 21, the people say nothing. They couldn't answer. Israel had fallen so far that the people did not know which God was real. And, and surely, growing up, they would have learnt all that the Lord had done for them in the past. But no, they'd lost sight of the truth. Truth was absent. This must have been both frustrating and sad for Elijah. So he laid down the challenge. You offer a sacrifice to your God, I'll offer a sacrifice to the Lord. All the people said, well, what you say is good. Challenge accepted, whichever God answers by fire, well, he is the true God. We will accept that truth. We'll, we'll turn to him in worship alone. So the Bible prophets go first, and look how hard they work. From, from morning until noon, they danced and shouted, but nothing. Elijah teases them, shout louder. Maybe Baal is philosophizing. Maybe he's gone to Asda. Maybe he's stuck on the M25, or he's just having a nap. You see, Elijah knew that only the Lord would answer. So they kept going, desperate to prove that Baal is the true God. They even harmed themselves and, 
And all this dancing and shouting and self-harm and frantic prophesying went on all day into the evening until end of verse 29, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Elijah's turn. He rebuilds his damaged altar. He places the sacrifice on the wood and he drowns it in water just to make sure that only the Lord has the glory. And he steps forward, he lifts his arms, he looks up and he prays, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Do you notice his longing in that prayer that these people will know that you, Lord, are God. These people will know the truth of who you are. Their, their hearts will be turned to you. They, they will live in worship of you only. You can imagine what happens next, can't you? Perhaps you can imagine Christopher Nolan, the director, um, producing a film, depicting it. Imagine standing there and seeing that first flicker of a flame in the sky, then another then another, then people's eyes start to, start to widen, their hearts to, start to beat a little bit faster, then whoosh, a great column of fire falls from heaven. And the people, they, they have to cover their eyes because the, the fire of the Lord is falling. Just imagine the incredible noise as everything in its path is destroyed. The sacrifice, the wood, even the stones themselves and the soil beneath it is scorched. And the water gone, evaporated in an instant. The fire of the Lord has consumed the lot. What do the people do? What would you do? Well, they fall down, prostrate on the floor in fear, in awe, in wonder, in amazement, and they cry out the only thing that they can. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And what else could they have done? And suddenly, all that they've been brought up to believe, that all religions are basically the same, it doesn't matter which God you worship, the Lord is just one God amongst many, all of their preconceptions about the Lord wiped out in an instant, gone forever. God answered Elijah's prayer. The people were no longer silent. Their hearts turned back, their lives changed, their worship directed towards the living God. So how does this account help our worship to be directed to the true and living God? When we're thinking about what it would take, what it would take for worship to be the center of our everyday lives, for it to be, in some sense for us, the whole point of everything, here are three ways. Firstly, we need to know the truth. In some ways, the spiritual culture that this account takes place in is, is similar to the spiritual culture we live in. The people Elijah is confronting in this passage have been brought up in the society that was full of many gods, the living God, just one that they could choose to worship, if they bothered to worship one at all. All sounds quite familiar, doesn't it? The truth of who God was and what he'd done was a distant memory, a forgotten story. This led people being able, unable to answer that question that Elijah posed to them, who is God, the Lord or Baal? Nothing. They had nothing to say. And misinformation is so common in our day, isn't it? It's everywhere about everything. And misinformation about who the Lord is is just as common, often so subtle. It exists on our TVs and our social media feeds, through our friends, colleagues. We are 
drip-fed misinformation about God all the time. And what is the outcome of swallowing continuous, unchecked misinformation about God? Well, we lose the truth of who he is and what he's done. And when we do that, we, get, we go into dangerous territory because we start to veer off from, from what is true about God. If we start worshipping a version of him that is not shown to be true in his word, we're veering off into idolatry, creating a God that is no, really no God at all. How do we protect ourselves from ending up here? Well, we need to engage with the truth about who God is. And of course, we do that through the Bible, through his word. The Bible is the way that God has chosen to speak to us, to reveal himself to us. And so it is the authority on what is true about him. So let's immerse ourselves in it. We need to find time regularly reading it at home, meditating on it, reading books that help explain it to us, listen to it in the car. But we also need to do it together. Remember, the Israelites failed in this collectively. It wasn't just one or two individuals. So collectively, we must immerse ourselves in the word too. We need to prioritize coming to church, to listen to it being read and hear it being preached. We need to regularly talk about it with each other in our small and local groups and one-to-ones. Just imagine for a moment you bound up enthusiastically after the service to me because you're just so keen to talk to me about how great my son Joshua is. And you start by telling me he's such a great boy. I'd say, thank you. That's kind of you. Then you'd proceed to tell me how brilliant a ballerina he is, how he loves playing the saxophone and he's an excellent speaker of Italian. And I'd give you a funny look because, no, that's not him. But you're adamant that these characteristics just make him such a great kid. And I'd have to find a polite way to tell you that actually you're quite mistaken. Josh doesn't do ballet. He plays football. He isn't learning the saxophone. He's randomly learning the double bass. And he can't speak any Italian, but he loves eating pizza. Your praise of Joshua is well-intentioned, yes, but ultimately meaningless. You don't really know him. Your praise for him is not based on the truth. And similarly, we can't be faithful worshippers of God if we don't know the truth about him. That analogy is obviously not perfect. I've used Joshua's abilities as a reason you might praise him. It would be even worse if you made up who he really was, what drove him, his characteristics, his, his heart. And if we veer off creating a God that only has the characteristics that we think God should have, well, that really is dangerous ground. We, we can't pick and choose who God is and worship him on the basis of who we think he should be. So instead, we need to turn to his word individually and collectively and let's discover him in it and know the truth about him. Secondly, we need to focus on his glory. For the people in this passage, the gods they saw temples and shrines to each day were, were just equal in glory. None was more glorious than the other. There was no conviction at all that the Lord was glorious. If so, they would, have been, they would not have been silent or wavering from the Lord to Baal. The God, glory of God had been forgotten. Now, God's glory is just such a huge magnificent biblical theme. Andrew mentioned it last Sunday evening. The weightiness of God's glory. A bit like the tension you feel in the air when a vast thunderstorm is about to break. It's hard to do justice at all to God's 
glory. But it might help us to hear how one writer describes it. The glory of God is interwoven throughout the biblical story and forms the origin, content, and goal of the entire cosmic narrative. Think on God's many perfections. God's glory is the magnificence, the worth, loveliness, and grandeur of all of those perfections. But the world's conviction is that the Lord is not at all glorious. It denies he even exists. It only uses his name as a swear word. Are we tempted to swallow up that conviction? Are we tempted to make God small and understandable? Are we tempted to make God into, turn, turn God into a genie in a bottle that, that grants our wishes? He's easy to explain. Are we even tempted to deny the beauties of who he is, a magnificent creator, humble servant, and a loving father? If we do that, we are again in dangerous territory, for, for our God is glorious beyond compare. Nothing can possibly match up to his glory. I mean, Moses knew all about this. When he asked to see God's glory, God told him, you can't, you, you can't see my face. Because if anyone does, they will die. Such is the weight of God's glory. Just listen to Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God. The first chapter of his book, he says, he saw what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on a throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell face down. Elijah's prayer was that his people would know the glory of the Lord. That they would see that he is indeed God. The noise of their culture had drowned it out. And we can relate to that, can't we? Our culture is so loud so distracting that the truth of the glory of the Lord is drowned out. And we need to be alive to the noise and drown it out, not, not let it divert our attention away from the glory of the Lord. We must focus on his glory. Praise God, he answered Elijah's prayer here and revealed his glory to those people. And we must remember that in our worship and let it be a catalyst for worship. And finally, we must delight in his grace. There must have been thousands of people on Mount Carmel that day. Obviously, 850 prophets to Baal and Asherah, plus people from all over Israel who we know were wavering between their worship of the Lord and of Baal. The prophets obviously had no interest at all in the worship of the Lord. These were people who had denied God, denied him, who had deprived him of the glory that he was due, who had forsaken him and all that he had done for them in the past. And there in pieces lying on the altar as Elijah prayed, was his sacrifice to the Lord. When that first flicker of a flame came, I wonder how nervous the people were. I wonder if any of them had the thought running through their mind that God was about to show up here, and we have rejected him, and, and we have forsaken him, and could his wrath be poured out on us too? Could, could he find 
the sacrifice on the altar unacceptable. And then I wonder how they felt if they dared watch the column of fire falling and burning up the sacrifice. Elijah's worship to the Lord was acceptable. And what it meant was that the wrath of God was diverted away from his people. God that day wasn't just showing his glory. He was also showing his grace too. And there was another time God's wrath was poured out on a sacrifice on a hill. Another day, another hill, another sacrifice was offered. And this one was acceptable. God's wrath was poured out on it. But it wasn't an animal. It was the Lord Jesus himself. As Jesus died on that cross, the judgment of God fell again. Not on the people nearby who deserved it, but on him. It struck him. God's wrath diverted from his people once again, but for the first and last time onto our Lord. And again, the Lord showed us that day not just his glory, but his grace freely given to us. Is our response to that the same as the people's was to this, in this account? Does it humble us enough? Does it delight us enough? Does it make his, us see his glory enough that we bow down to him and cry, the Lord Jesus, he is God. The Lord Jesus, he is God. Because the focal point of all Christian worship, it has to be the cross. And when we see our Savior hanging on the cross, we see God at his most glorious. We see his righteousness. We see his wrath satisfied. We see his grace. We see his loving kindness on display. We see his, his offer of salvation to all. We see his holiness. We see his many perfections. And we know that in the new creation, the worship will all be focused on the throne of God. And Revelation 5 explains that standing in the center of that throne will be the Lamb, Jesus Christ, risen in glory. And these words will be said to him, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. How then are we to make worship central to our everyday lives? Central to all that we do together as his people. To make it the point of everything. Where we soak ourselves in the truth to avoid deception about who God is. We focus on his glory. His glory shown on that day. His glory shown on the cross. His glory beyond compare. And we delight in his grace, freely given, so that we are not consumed, but are raised to his glorious throne in heaven, where we will perfectly worship him for all eternity. Let's pray. Father God, you are, you are glorious beyond compare. You are worthy of all our worship. You are worthy to be central of all our lives and all that we do. Father, we are 
sorry, we confess our worship often falters. Father, we pray that you'd help us to see you clearly, help us to know the truth of who you are, help us to focus on your glory, delight in the grace that you've shown us through the Lord Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to cry out like the people did, the Lord Jesus, he is God. And we pray this in his name. Amen.